0: All right, good morning. Let's start this morning by asking you a question. Um, if you're a parent, um, have you ever warned one of your kids? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that was a silly question. Of course you have. Um, if you're a kid, has your mom or dad ever warned you about anything? Yeah, probably so, right? Um, the, the reason that we warn people is because we care about them. And so if I, as a parent to my kids, warn them about something, it's not because I'm mad or angry or because I don't like them, it's because I do like them that I warn them. Warnings are proof or an example of the way that we show love to someone or care for someone else. They are tools of love. So as we're looking at this passage this morning, what we're seeing is a warning, and it's the second um, of five major warnings in the book of Hebrews. Um, of course, there's lots of warnings in Hebrews. This, these are not, not just five, but there are five big ones. Um, as people have kind of outlined the book, they've said there are five major warnings here in this book. So this is our second one. And Hebrews as a, as a text is already one of the more kind of difficult to understand books of the Bible, right? We would all kind of recognize that as, as you're coming to study a book like Hebrews, everybody kind of goes like, ooh, ooh, yeah, that's a tough one, Right? Mostly because it relies so heavily on the Old Testament and we are woefully unfamiliar with the Old Testament in general as American Christians. We just, that's just not something we spend a lot of time on. So that's part of why it's so hard for us. Um, and so in a book that's already kind of difficult, these warning passages are probably the most difficult parts of this book. Um, so this morning, of course Jared's not here and I get to do this sermon <laughs> um, because this is a hard text. Um, But I'm hopeful that we can understand more about it, and hopefully you'll be encouraged. Um, And we'll see maybe a little bit how these warnings in Scripture uh, affirm and, and, and encourage us as believers, but also how they can affect someone who may think they're a believer, may claim to be a Christian, but isn't really in the faith. So let's think about warnings in general in Scripture. In the Old Testament, we saw lots of warnings. We see God speaking like straight to people. In the the garden, he warns Adam and Eve with a warning. He says, don't eat that tree or this is what's going to happen, right? Do not eat this fruit. That's his warning to them. He he speaks directly to them. We see God give warnings through his law. If you obey the commandments I've given you, then there will be goodness for you. If you disobey them, there will be badness, right? We see God giving warnings through leaders like judges and kings throughout the Old Testament, We see God giving warnings uh, through the wisdom literature of Proverbs, for example, right? What does it say? Be wise so that your life won't look like this foolish person's. If we look at the Psalms, we see Psalms of warning. Even Psalm 95, which is quoted here in our text this morning, it's a Psalm of warning. It's saying, don't be like these people because this is what happened to them. And then we can look at the prophets. The prophets' major job was to warn the people. Right, they came and they had this whole blessing and cursing language where they said, if you do this, you will be blessed. If you do this, you will be cursed. And they were continually warning God's people not to do the things that will get them cursed. Then we come to the New Testament. We have warnings. We have the warnings of Christ to both unbelievers and to his disciples. He warns them. We have the warnings of the apostles as they're writing the letters to the churches uh, that make up our New Testament. Scripture is full of warnings. And warnings are so important because they are a tool that God uses to keep us on track. Jared used the example of a mountain. I think Lanny used it too, where it's like there's a trail on a mountain and there's these warnings saying, don't go that way, don't go that way, don't go that way. Right? What are those warnings meant to do? To keep you from falling off the side of the mountain. They keep us on track. They guide us. They're also a means of exposing false faith in someone who claims to be a believer, but who isn't. So then why is this warning in Hebrews so challenging? Well, I think we have to look at it. Uh, Hebrews 3.12. And as we're considering this text, I want you to really come away with one thing majorly. So hear this, and if you check out after I say this, um, you'll miss some, some fun stuff, I hope. Um, but this is what you need to hear, okay? True belief, true faith, is revealed by a life of faithfulness to the end. And so we as believers must continually examine ourselves and we must continually encourage one another to make sure we are holding fast to our confidence, ultimately knowing that our security is found in God's grip on us, not in his grip on him. That's what this text is really saying to us, but let's unpack it. Context first. Hebrews 3, what do we just see? We have this comparison, right? The author of Hebrews here is giving us this examples, these examples of faithfulness. He says, here's Moses, and he was a faithful servant. And then here's Jesus, he was a faithful son. And he makes a big deal about saying, and Jesus is way better than Moses. And then he gives us this contrast. He says, so these two guys were really faithful, but the children of Israel were really unfaithful. Why? What did they do? Well, he says, they hardened their hearts, they put God to the test, they went astray in their hearts, they did not know God ways, and so he said, you will not enter my rest. Right, so we have this, Jesus and Moses is faithful, and then we have children of Israel. In verse 12, what we're looking at today, introduces the contrast for the children of Israel. That's us, believers, New Covenant believers are presented here as the contrast to the unfaithful Israelites. How do we know that? Well, look at verse 12. What does he say? He says, take care, brothers. That language, brothers, that's intended to be like fellow believers, right? That's, you're part of my family, part of this household of faith. So he's speaking to fellow believers pretty clearly here. We have to understand, most importantly here, we have to understand this is a comparison This text that we're looking at today is building on what we saw last week. Moses was faithful, Jesus was more faithful, the children of Israel were unfaithful. What are you going to do? That's the question he's bringing up. Will you be unfaithful like they were, or will you be faithful like your Savior? Let's look at the warning. Verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So what's the warning? The warning's pretty clear. Take care. And this is not like, a, oh, see you later, take care, kind of take care. This is a warning which implies danger. So it's a warning of like, watch out, be careful, be on the lookout, be alert, take care. There's danger. What is the danger? Well, if you keep reading the verse, the danger is the condition of your heart. Now, if you remember the list of reasons that God gave for why he disinherited the children of Israel who were wandering in the wilderness. He said, you can't enter my rest. Why did he say it? Well, in verse 8, he said, they hardened their hearts. And in verse 10, he says, they always went astray in their hearts. The heart is the seat of our faithfulness or of our faithlessness, of our unfaithfulness. Because the heart is like the core, and biblically, the heart is the core of your will, the core of who you are the seat of your emotions and your desires. So if you have an unbelieving heart, as Ezekiel would say, that's a heart of stone, right? And as he said, we have to have this heart of stone replaced with a heart of flesh. Our heart has to be changed. Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful, desperately wicked. So our default status is to have this evil, unbelieving heart. We have to be given a new heart for that to change. So here's the call. The call here is to examine your heart. Is it an evil, unbelieving heart? Let me make a clarity here too, right? When it says evil, unbelieving, those aren't like two options. Like you could have an unbelieving heart that isn't evil. They go hand in hand. Unbelief is an evil thing. It is a rejection of God. Therefore, it is evil. So an unbelieving heart is an evil heart. Or have you been given a new heart? That's the question. Do you have a heart of belief and faith? Because it is possible, right, for you to have an unbelieving heart and claim to follow Christ. It is possible to go to church um, and tell people that you love God um, and say the right things, um, but not have a heart that has been changed. That's the warning here. Check yourself. Look at the core of who you are. Not just at what you do, not just at what you say, because even a heart of stone can follow the rules for a while and say the right things for a while. But eventually, that kind of person falls away. They don't stay. Only those who have been given a new heart, a heart of faith, will persevere to the end. So, the command. The command is clear. Take care. Watch out. Be careful. And then we're given this tool to help us do this work of taking care. We should check our hearts we should examine our hearts to see if we have a heart of unbelief or a heart of belief we're tempted this is this is a really easy thing to do right we're always when i say watch out or be careful you're looking for external things you're like watching for some bad guy to come and get you and you're on your guard like you put your hands up you've got your sword ready whatever um you're ready to fight the enemy from outside What this is telling us is that the first enemy you have to deal with is your own heart. The first place you have to start is by looking at you. You're watching out. You're being careful. You're being careful about yourself, your own heart. Examine yourself. And that's up to each and every one of us individually. Nobody can examine your heart for you. We can see the fruits of it. If you spend enough time with somebody, right, you'll see the fruits of their heart, their language, their actions will tell you something about it it's really up to each and every one of us individually to examine our own hearts. All right, so in this next verse then, we're given a second tool that helps us to do this work of taking care. The first tool is to examine our own hearts, and then the second tool is here in verse 13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So the first way to take care is to personally examine your heart, but the second way to take care is to encourage each other. That means that the church has a role in checking your faithfulness. It has a role in like examining you at some level too. We're called to keep on encouraging each other so that none of us will be hardened by sin. What does that mean, hardened by sin? Sin has this way of deceiving. We all know that, right? Sin is deceitful. It sneaks in. It lures us. And if we just go it alone, right, um, it's really easy to become blind to a certain sin problem or hardened to a certain sin problem. We don't want to be hardened by it. Having relationships with other people, pouring into other people's lives, having them pour into our lives, holding other believers accountable and having them hold you accountable Those things help us uncover and deal with sin patterns that we may not realize are even there. Recognize, too, that this hardening of sin, this kind of deceitfulness, it can be contagious. So if there's like a false teaching uh, or a sin problem that is manifest in somebody and it's not being dealt with within the body, then other people can catch on to that, right? It can spread. That's why we must be faithful in the continual encouragement um, exhorting, admonishing uh, one another. And now, the, heart, the part that's like, oh yeah, I'm good with that, here's the, <laughs> here's the rub. This kind of exhortation, this kind of encouragement, it can't happen if you aren't interacting with believers regularly. It can't. Like, the repetition in his verse says, uh, every day, as long as it is called today, That's not a like, I'll be praying for you after church on Sunday in a two-minute conversation. That may be a piece of this kind of encouragement. But what this is calling us to is is living a life of connection with people and encouraging them and growing them and, and, and sometimes calling them out in their sin. That requires deep personal relationships with people. You can't do that with somebody that you just see once a week, that you just talk to once a week, if once a week. You can't do it. Does that mean every single person has to be like brothers with every single other person, You know, like you're always talking to every single other person in this church? No, we can't all be Serlio. He can have that kind of connection with everybody, it seems like. But you need a group of people. You need someone uh, who will hold you accountable, who you can encourage. That's so... Vital to living the life of faithfulness. So vital. But then we see, after we learn that taking care has this individual part and this corporate part, we get the grounding for all of this. Because the question would be like, how can I take care? How can I do this? How can I check my heart and trust that what I see is right? How can I encourage you and know that it's going to bear fruit in your life? How can any of that mean anything? Verse 14 tells us, For we have come to share in Christ. The only reason why you examining your heart can do any good, the only reason why encouraging other people can bear fruit and do anything at all is because of our union with Christ. Because we share in His holiness, because we share in His inheritance, because we share in His life, because we share in Christ. We can examine our hearts and know that I can trust my discernment. I know that I can look at myself and say, I am a believer. And I can trust that when I look at that, I'm right because of my union with Christ. Because we share in Christ, I can trust that when I encourage you, when I exhort you, it's going to bear fruit. It's going to do something, that you're going to hear it, you're going to listen, and you're going to be encouraged. I know that my encouragement helps. I know that when you encourage me, it helps because we are united in Christ. Our union with Christ is like the the reason why these tools do any good. So this taking care that we're seeing here is grounded in a relationship with Jesus, which is why the call is to examine yourselves. Because if, if if you're not in the relationship with Him, if you don't believe, if you have a heart of unbelief, None of this is going to work. It can't happen. But then, okay, then we encounter the second half of verse 14. And this is the part where, you know, I said that these can be difficult sometimes. These warnings can be a little tough. This is where it might get a little confusing if we aren't careful and look at the words carefully. So the, the, the second half here says, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now, because we, uh, in our English-speaking way, always want to make if-thens be if-thens, uh, we don't like having the if come after the then part, right? It's confusing to us. We would probably, at first, you might be tempted to say it this way. If I hold fast to my confidence to the end, then I will share in Christ, right? You might read it that way at first. If I hold fast, then I'll share in Christ. But there's a problem with that reading of this verse. And that problem is, Uh, is the rest of the Bible. If you you ever encounter a verse, a piece of Scripture, some passage that you say, this is tough, what is this really saying? The best tool for interpretation is the rest of the Bible. There's this principle, and it's like an old thing, right? They came up with it a long time ago. In fact, it has a Latin name, Analogia Scriptura. Basically, the idea is, interpret Scripture with Scripture. So we can see in other parts of God's Word, in other parts of the Bible, that our security is not grounded in our grip on God, but in His grip on us. That's hugely important. Just in the past, like, past few books that we've studied here, right? Remember we did a study on Romans not too long ago. In Romans 8 it says, "...for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation..." will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We did a study on John a few years ago. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Not too long ago, we did a study in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. We learned that when we heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation and believed in Him, then we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Nothing can separate us from God's love. No one is able to snatch us out of the Father's hand. We have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. We have a guaranteed inheritance. Your eternal salvation is not dependent on you and thanks be to God for that. So if this, if I hold fast, then I will share in Christ. If that's a poor reading of this verse, what would be a better one? You have to pay attention to the tenses of the verbs. I know, it's the English teacher in me coming out. But look, look, what does it say? We have come to share in Christ. So the better, better understanding of this would be, if we hold our original confidence to the end, then we have come to share in Christ. The sharing in Christ comes before the holding fast to our confidence to the end. That original confidence, that's faith. That's our conversion. That's the original confidence we have is our faith. What it's it's saying, let me me break this down as, as simply as I can. Holding to our faith to the end is the natural outworking of our sharing in Christ. It's not the other way around. The only reason I can hold firm to my confidence is because God is holding me. So a better way to say it, maybe even this, would be this way. If you share in Christ, you will persist in your confidence in your faith to the end. Remaining faithful to the end reveals a faithful heart. It doesn't make a faithful heart. So what have we seen so far? A warning, take care, watch out, be careful. Then two tools to help us take care. Examine your heart, encourage one another. Then we give the, we're given the foundation of these tools, our sharing in Christ. Our union with Jesus is the, the, the resource, the reason that these tools can work. And that sharing in Christ will be confirmed by our persisting in faith to the end. It will reveal that that sharing in Christ is true. And now, as a pattern we'll see in the book of Hebrews, uh, the writer is going to kind of use this Old Testament text uh, to reinforce his point. So he says, uh, quotes again from Psalm 95 here in verse 15. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. We've already seen this, right? He's repeating uh, this. He said this already in verses 7 and 8. So he's just reinforcing the point. He's giving this command. Don't harden your heart in rebellion. Don't harden your heart. Rebellion is is the natural outworking of unbelief. A lack of belief will necessarily lead to rebellion. In fact, really, if you think about it, a lack of belief is rebellion. Unbelief is rebellious because we know the human heart is made for worship. And so if I am not believing in the one true God, I'm necessarily an idolater. I'm worshiping something else. That's That is rebellion against God. So when he says don't harden your heart, he's basically saying, don't continue in your unbelief. And then he emphasizes that he uses that time word again, right? You see that word today. (coughs) Sorry, one second. This pattern of of today has been and will continue to be uh, for a little bit longer here in Hebrews. This strong pattern. It's the call to take action right now. This isn't like, well, it's something I may have to deal with in a couple of weeks. Uh, I'll be on the lookout for when that opportunity arises and I have to make that, that decision or take that course of action. The call is today. Check your heart today. Exhort one another today. Do not be rebellious today. And guess what? It's always today. You ever seen those signs, that's like free coffee tomorrow or whatever? That sign stays the same. It's never tomorrow, it's always today. So this is the conscious daily work of the believer. Encourage each other today. Exhort one another today. Do not be rebellious today. And then we see this series of questions. And I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on these, uh, but I do want to point out something Uh, that's important here. So in verses 16, we have this, uh, For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. All right, so he has this series of questions, right? The first question, I think, is maybe one of the more important ones, because... It helps us think about how easy rebellion is. Think about the Exodus story with me for just a second, right? And I won't go into every detail, but just imagine the children of Israel in bondage and slavery for half a millennium, hundreds of years. Then God raises up Moses to set them free. But Pharaoh won't let them go, right? And so God sends these insane, crazy plagues That the Israelites can see they see them have they're happening to them too at some level he still won't let them go and finally we have that 10th plague the death of the firstborn in which the children of Israel see God's grace and passing over them because they're covered by the blood of the lamb and Pharaoh finally lets them leave and as soon as they've left what happens they find themselves trapped between a rock and a red sea And God parts the Red Sea right before their eyes, and they walk across on dry land. Then, as they're in the wilderness, God's leading them by a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. They get manna dropped on them from heaven daily. They get quail presented to their door daily, magically. And yet, in spite of seeing all of God's power on display, in spite of hearing from God himself, in spite of the law that they had, in spite of Moses like, continually like, begging on their behalf, and God continually being merciful to them, they still rebelled. So you might hear people say, well, if Jesus came back and I could just see him turn water into wine, I would believe. No, you wouldn't. Children of Israel didn't believe, and they saw way more than that. Signs and wonders have this role in like, providing validity, of course. Yeah, Jesus did it so that he could say, like, I really am who I say I am. But they don't generate faith. They don't preserve faith. That is a work of the Spirit and the Spirit alone. So if rebellion is easy for Israel, As they saw that, rebellion is easy for us. We have more wonders, more signs than they had. We have God's word testifying to us of everything God has done. His work of atonement is laid out for us in his word. But people read it and rebel. That's why this call to check our hearts is so important. Because rebellion is really easy. And Verse 17 points out, God was provoked with them for 40 years. Their rebellion was consistent. Their disobedience was consistent. And ultimately, they failed to enter God's rest because they didn't believe. Unbelief leads to action. The way that you live is reflective of whether you believe or not. But bigger than that, your ultimate destination is determined by whether you believe or not. There's a lot to lose. Notice what the children of Israel lost. And I swore in my wrath that they will not enter my rest. Now, that theme of rest, oh, golly, this is so important. This is, um, throughout the Bible, this theme of rest is, is everywhere, okay? We see it established in the very beginning when God creates the world and then he, he rests from his creation. And then in Eden, it's this place of rest, wholeness, completeness with God. This isn't like a, uh, I've been working all week and I need to rest. I'm not, it's not an I'm tired kind of rest. This kind of rest is a sense of success and productivity in your work, a sense of completeness and satisfaction and peace. That's what this rest is. And that kind of rest is lost because of the fall. That kind of rest is gone because of of the sin. Not just Adam and Eve, our own sin causes us to not have that kind of rest. And God in his rest, in his rest, God in his grace, he gave us a taste of it, right? In the Sabbath day, in the law, he says, you can have some rest. I want you to taste it. Just work for six days, and on the seventh day, you're going to have this taste of what rest is. And then Israel, they see this promised land as A possible return to that kind of Edenic rest, right? That's going to be just like it was when Adam and Eve were in the garden. It'll be this sense of wholeness and completion, right? This this peace that we'll be able to have when we're there. But because of their unbelief, they lost it. They lost that rest. But the rest, the rest they lost is way bigger than a piece of land in the Middle East. Way bigger than that. Rest is redemptive. What does Jesus say in Matthew? Come to me if you've got burdens. I'll give you rest. The fullness of our rest is in heaven, absolutely, but in a sense, we don't have to wait for that kind of rest to start. It starts in Christ. Jesus is our Sabbath. He is our rest. We experience the beginning of rest when we place our faith in Him. Suddenly, Our work for the kingdom has meaning. The work that we do on a daily basis has meaning and purpose. We find success in it. We find satisfaction and completeness and peace in Christ. And in the end, we will absolutely have perfect rest in the new heaven and the new earth for all of eternity. Because that rest is in Christ and he will rule as our king. That's what's at stake. It's not a land flowing with milk and honey. It's not peace with our possible enemies. It's not just that. The rest that we stand to lose if we are unfaithful is eternity with Christ. So in conclusion, what's the point of all this? There's a contrast here. Moses was faithful Jesus was more faithful the Israelites were unfaithful will you be unfaithful the Israelites rebelled will you rebel the Israelites were unable to enter God's rest because of their unbelief will you persist in your unbelief so that you may not enter his rest either Or will you believe so that you can enter God's rest He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. But here in chapter 3 of Hebrews, we see that one of the main means that God uses to keep us in the faith, to help us persevere, is that He warns us, and He warns us sternly. God's warnings are a means of His grace to keep us believing, to keep us faithful. And in His love, Just like you warn your kids in love, in his love he warns us. And in this text he offers us tools to help us persevere, examine ourselves, encourage and admonish each other, hold fast to your confidence, to your faith. Don't be rebellious, don't be disobedient. Keep on believing. And true belief is revealed by a life of faithfulness. To remain faithful, We have to examine ourselves, encourage one another, and we have the assurance that if our faith is true, we'll heed this warning. We'll hold fast to our faith to the end because we know ultimately we are kept by the power of God and not by the power of us. So I hope that you'll hear this warning. Hear this warning. Examine your heart. Is your faith real? Does it bear fruit? If it isn't real, if you've been faking it really well, if you thought you believed, but your life doesn't show that to be true, repent of your sin. Believe the gospel today. Trust Christ. Trust that He came, lived a perfect life, died, rose, and lives for you. If you see that your faith is real, encourage your brothers and sisters in Christ. Exhort the church, admonish and hold one another accountable. Continue to hold fast in your confidence in Christ. Remain faithful, knowing that your perfect rest is found in Him and is secure in Him. Moses was faithful. Jesus was more faithful. Israel was unfaithful. But I pray that you will follow our Savior in faithfulness to the end. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled that you would care enough about us to warn us. That you would love us so much that you would guide us in faithfulness. That you would give us the example of Christ to know what faithfulness looks like. That you would teach us through your word how we can be faithful to you. Help us this morning to examine our hearts, to look at ourselves, to see if there's a heart in us that is full of unbelief. Help us to encourage one another to hold each other accountable, to develop relationships in which we can do those things. Help us love each other in the way that you've called us to. And give us grace, Father, to hold fast to our confidence in Christ, knowing that your grip on us is secure so that our grip can be secure as well. Help us, Father, to trust you more and more and to glorify and praise you and honor you with everything we do. In Christ's name, amen.